0: Well, if you haven't been living in a cave, uh, you've probably heard uh, the good news flying around the UK this week. I think it actually came out on Monday. Uh, some of you are, are nodding knowingly at the others, even looking blank. Maybe you have been in a cave this week. I am, of course, talking about a royal wedding. Woo! Uh, okay, there's, there's muted excitement in the room. <laughs> uh, well, judging from the response on social media, the, the response on the news, uh, the Telegraph website is absolutely chopped full of uh, things. The uh, BBC News website, the same, the games everywhere, The Times, Rodney Reed, uh, Sun and the Mirror, also just front and centre this Royal Wedding. It is something um, something to focus on in a time of uncertainty in our, our nation, and that's certainly how it's been portrayed. Now, for those that are uh, still unaware of uh, maybe some of the details of what I'm describing, Prince Harry. Uh, proposed. I don't exactly know when he proposed, but it was, uh, certainly we found out about it on Monday, to a lady called Megan Markle. Have I got that right? Correct. Yep. Thank you. 36 years of age uh, is Megan, an actress. She's played Zane. Rachel Zane. Rachel. Rachel Zane. Rachel <laughs> <laughs> Zane. That's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> not it? There are certain things you can't learn on Wikipedia, folks. Uh, Rachel Zane in suits since 2011. I think for the last year they've been sort of busily writing around the script because they thought this might be on on the docket. Anyway, she's 36, I said that, and she's a native of L.A. This lady, this woman, is about to become part of the establishment in this nation. Not just part of the establishment, but in order to marry Prince Harry, she's going to have to become a British citizen. This union, this marriage, will mean a huge Transition in her life, a trans, a transition, a trans, uh, a transfer at the most basic level of her identity. Her citizenship will change. Now, in order for her to change her citizenship, she'll have to go through a- an onerous process, uh, a test. In fact, one particular test uh, that will um, enable her to become a British citizen. That test comprises of twenty-four questions, which sounds really easy, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But actually, it's not easy. About 36% of people that take that test fail. It's very difficult. The knowledge that you need, a friend of mine did this a few years ago, the knowledge you need to pass that test, I guarantee none of us know that. <laughs> none of us know it. If we were born here, we just would not know. That's stuff that you have to learn. She's got to do that. So she needs new knowledge in order to change her fundamental identity, their new citizenship. She needs new knowledge. Not just new knowledge, she needs to learn some new rules. I mean, goodness me, driving on the left is basic, folks, but it's essential. But even beyond that, what about, like, your first experience of being British, being royal British? Like, your mother-in-law's the queen, how you address her, how many knives and forks are going to be at breakfast when you start? Uh, What's it look like to be a part of that family? she's going to have to learn a whole lot of new rules? Also, she's going to have to learn some new behaviours. for her is going to mean a new level of attention and she's already experienced that this week in our fair city of Nottingham. <laughs> Did anybody show up in the week to welcome them? Okay, a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well done, represent. It's good to see Church was out in force, <laughs> two of you. I actually went totally back to them. <laughs> but there we are. A new level of attention. Her past is going to be exposed to a whole new level of attention. Her present and her future. There's no moment of her life from here on end that will be private. A new level of expectation. What she says, thinks, and does will be surrounded by interest, will be assessed. And a new level of pressure. Before, she spoke for herself. She'd never speak for herself and herself alone again. That is pressure. That's, the, that's what's attached to this shift, this fundamental shift in her identity. She's representing now, not only herself, but a kingdom. See where I'm going. This This good news has manifested in her life a major shift. A major shift. And there is no going back. There's no way to be the same again. This good news has involved a change in identity, which will mean a shift in behaviour. That is what good news does. That's what the gospel does. That's what Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, the good news will do for them. I told you uh, last last time I preached, two weeks ago, we had a guest speaker last week, but two weeks ago I said that Paul is obsessed with the gospel. He mentions it again and again and again, Jesus Christ, the gospel, in chapter 1. Loads and loads of times he's, so, he's just obsessed with it. And now at the end of the chapter, he finally gets to what the gospel does in your life. And the argument is exactly the same as as with Megan, it's that the gospel causes a shift in your fundamental identity. You become a citizen of a different country. And because of that transition, your behavior, not just your identity, but your behavior, your ethics, your outlook, your perspective is shifted. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. What is the gospel? Most basically, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news about a person. And the person is Jesus. The gospel is the, the good news that the, uh, the incarnated son of God, Jesus. Uh, God's own son, born in flesh, as we'll be celebrating in just a few weeks. As we're even beginning to celebrate now. That that God, that Jesus, the crucified, the risen, the ascended Jesus, is Lord of all the earth. He's the king of everything. That's the gospel. And that his, king, his kingship... Shifts absolutely everything in the known universe And in even the unknown universe Everything on heaven, on earth Is now subject to his lordship That's the gospel And that shifts It's a cosmic, it's a bigger story It's the biggest possible frame The biggest possible paradigm And that story shifts everything in our lives It has uh, manifestations, ramifications Effects on an individual level it means that every part of my life is subject to Jesus' opinion. It means if I'm a follower of his, there's nothing in my life that's my call. What I do with my money, well actually there is no my money anymore. It's his call, it's his money, everything belongs to him. My prayer life, is about him, well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to pray for? How do you want me to pray? My relationships to, how I relate to them. Fundamentally that has to be subjected to him and his opinion. Every single part of my life is about him. That's the individual shift that takes place but it's not just. The gospel never just has an individual perspective alone. It's always communal <coughs> because we're brought into a family. Jesus through the gospel, through his death and resurrection, through his life, death and resurrection His ascension, He's creating a new community, and this—not that new community, but this new community—is empowered to live a different way, and in living a different way, to show His love to the world. That's what the gospel does. That's what good news does. The question for us is: How do we live that life? What does that life look like? What are the rules? What are the expectations? What are the attitudes? What are What is the knowledge required to enter into this new kingdom, into this new community? I've fallen off the stage. (laughs) What is is required in order to do that, in order to live in this new way? To do what Meghan Markle has done, what is needed for us to do that? Paul writes these words to this community to answer just that question he's just given them as we said a couple weeks ago an incredibly compelling example of that through his own life and it the climax of that moment was where he said to live is Christ to die is gain in other words I'm all in that's what it looks like to be a person uh under the gospel to be all in for Jesus but that just begs the question doesn't it what does that look like what does that look like to be all in? What is it like in flesh and blood when the rubber hits the road? What does it mean for you and I and for us together to use Paul's language, to live a life worthy of the gospel? I want to suggest three things because I'm an Anglican and a preacher. <laughs> yeah, that predictable, folks. <laughs> I want to suggest three things all come directly out of the text. Let's just read it. Verse 27, chapter 1. Open your Bible. Keep it open. We want to feast on this this morning. It's brilliant stuff. Whatever happens. Whatever happens. What he means is whether I live or die. Whether I live or die, whatever happens with me, whatever happens, conduct yourselves. In other words, Paul here is taking the focus, the attention of his own life. And he's placing it onto this community in Philippi. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit. We'll, we'll read on in a second. Keep that up for a second, Miles, if you would. Whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then whether I come and see you or, or only hear about you, dot, 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 dot. Paul is expecting to be with them. He's expecting, as he said just earlier in the chapter, to be released from prison, and he wants to come back to them, to encourage them, maybe to bring Timothy, who they wanted to be with them, after all. That's Paul's expectation, but of course he doesn't know what will happen to him. Uh, he has no, uh, no, no clear direction as to what will be next for him. But he says, whether I come or whether I stay away, live the same way. Live the same way. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, live lives of integrity. What does it mean to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? What what should we be looking to do and be as Trinity Church Nottingham in this city? We should be looking to be a people of integrity. Integrity is about living the same way whoever's watching. You know, that if, if, if you were cut down the middle, every cell would say the same thing. Always to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Whether uh, at home, whether at work, whether at university, whether uh, whatever you're doing, just to be saying and doing and living in the same way. That's what integrity is about. And this is what Paul's referring to. Now, integrity is difficult. Integrity is difficult. And and living the right way, living God's way in the secret place is challenging. I remember a couple of years ago, I was late uh, to take my daughter Grace to school. And folks, gosh, it's so easy to project a calmness and, and love from a stage like this. And you know, and you, I, could, I could give you an indication, I could try at least, maybe you're not fooled, but you know, that I'm just completely whole and healed and, oh, and you know, at my best, I'm funny and I'm light and, oh, it's great. There are moments, folks, and my, my family see lots of them in a hidden place where I'm not like that. And, and those, it's actually one every day. And, that's, and, and it happens every single day when I'm trying to get the kids out the door. When I'm trying to get the kids to school, I just become an ogre. Think of Shrek, but not kind. Like, you know, just, just that, that's sort of what I become. It's who I become in the morning. I hate being late. I hate being late. And the kids make me late. A couple of years ago in London, I was late, trying to get Grace to school. We used to have to drive to school. School was a few miles away. And I, I was late, and I, was, I saw that, that a car was coming. There was a car parked, and I thought, I could squeeze through that. So I thought, you know, put a bit of gas down, and like, shut your eyes and hope for the best. And as I went past the car, I just heard a little scrape. Oh, and I stopped the car, and I, there's some builders there, and they were sort of, oh, mate, I don't worry about it, drive off. I'm only doing the accent, because that was roughly the accent, that's not, <laughs> this isn't an anti-South East. Um, it's a tucker. They said, you know, just speed off, it doesn't matter, we didn't see it, give us 20 quid, is actually what they said, I so said, I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> anyway, I was like, I was, oh, I was just so, um, I was so frustrated, Anyway, I looked at my car, massive dent. I actually went to look at the other car. It was quite an old car. Uh, That's not an excuse (laughs) for what I'm about to tell you. On the side, and if you know, that this car's with like a fiberglass reinforcement. um, Really old. And as I looked, there was no damage to the car. I checked it a few times. I got the builders to come and check it. Now, irrespective, the right thing to do in that moment was to stop, was to put my details on the thing, to leave it in the windscreen to drive off. What did I do? I was late. I hate to be late. Did I mention that? <laughs> I was gutted. This car that I loved, this was in great shape, was dented, that really annoyed me. Obviously I loved that car too much. I looked at it, I saw there wasn't any damage, I'd inspected it fairly well. Folks, I'm here to tell you I drove off. I know. if you're going to leave the church. (laughs) If it makes it any better, I want you to know I felt deeply ashamed of what I did. I still actually do. You can pray for me later. This, you know, didn't get any better because uh, it turned out I needed to do about a grand's worth of work on my car to fix it. I didn't do the work. Uh, That was too much. Um, But also then a few, few months later, I heard a story of my cousin, Pete who leads a church with his wife, B in Kings Cross in London, and he'd had a similar situation happen. Now, what Pete did was he left a note on the car, and the person called him up and said, look, thank you for leaving your details. It's incredible. Um, Pete was able to share that, well, you know, I'm actually a vicar, and I just, obviously, I want to live with integrity. And the person said this, I never expected somebody would do that. You have restored my faith in humanity. How sick did I feel? LAUGHTER Folks, integrity is difficult. Living, living not just the, as if builders are watching, as it, or as if my congregation's watching, but if God is watching. It's tough. What does it look like practically? What does it look like at work to live with integrity? Not to join in the gossip circle. Not just not to join in, but to actually say, you know what, I can't can't join in with you. I don't want to speak about someone while they're not here. To positively stop that kind of behavior. What is that? That's hard. That takes moral fiber. That takes courage. What does it look like? Maybe to turn down a promotion. If you feel like taking that promotion would affect your life balance in a way that would be unhealthy for the relationships around you. Maybe to take a promotion that you're terrified of taking because you think God is leading you into it. It could be relational. Maybe it's to end a relationship that you know is not honouring God. Maybe it's to start a relationship and you're terrified of a relationship failing because of what you've experienced in the past. For each of us, it's going to be different. God is calling us to live lives of integrity. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Secondly, to live in a a manner worthy of the gospel is to live a life of perseverance. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 27, verse 28, we see this coming through. I will, this is second half of verse 27. We need some spotlights here, I I can't see, it's not my eyes, that's for sure. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. A life of perseverance. The the word uh, stand firm is a a word stikete, and it comes from the Greek word histemi, which literally means to stand. In other words, it means you'll stand firm. It's 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 a plural term. You all stand firm it's a command word it's a it's a well it's a command that's what it is it's an imperative that's the word i'm looking for stand firm it's a rousing word stand firm that's what paul's saying to this church now when we're under pressure it's certainly easy to be moved i was moved I lacked integrity because I was moved by the pressure of the situation. But a life worthy of the gospel is a life of standing firm in any and every environment. When you come under pressure to be somebody who does not move, it's good that this word is plural because it's impossible to stand firm on your own. Alcoholics Anonymous have a phrase, it's brilliant. They've got so much wisdom. In fact, by the way, Alcoholics Anonymous basically have uh, kept uh, a proper emphasis on on how the gospel is worked out in community while the churches think lost it. This idea of coming together as communities and sharing. uh, And one thing they say is when you isolate, you're sick. Isolation is a sign and a cause of spiritual sickness. You can't do Christianity alone. If you isolate, you're going to be picked off. Just like the lions uh, on on the plains of Africa. And I can't wait for Blue Planet to be over so we can have something that's on the ground. That's always (laughs) my (laughs) favourite. Controversial on the front row. Because you see how what they do is they isolate the weakest from the herd. And they pick that one off. Easy pickings. And that's 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 how the devil works in our communities. We need to stay together to encourage ourselves, to keep, everybody be encouraged to keep going. We need to stand firm. We do that together. I heard an amazing story uh, about a guy called uh, John Stephen Aquari. Anybody know that name? No, good. <laughs> he was a, an athlete from Tanzania who competed in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Now, some of you know your geography better than I do, but Mexico City is very high up. Uh, 2,300 meters, of, in fact, above sea level. And altitude makes it very difficult, as you know, the oxygen concentration at higher altitudes is is that much lower. And so it means your your heart and your muscles have to work that much harder to get oxygen to your muscles, uh, which can cause cramp and various other things. You really need to train in high altitudes to compete in high altitudes. Now, uh, Aquarius from Tanzania, where the Mount um, Mount Kilimanjaro is, just wanted to make sure I got that right. He's a long-distance runner, but he still wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared enough um, for that race. And in fact, many won. 18 of the 75 competitors in that marathon uh, fell out. He began suffering from cramp as a result of the high altitude early on in the race. Determined to improve his position, he was then involved in a pileup with other athletes nearing the halfway point, causing him to suffer a badly gashed and dislocated right knee as well as a bruised shoulder. A was advised, by the way, you can see this on YouTube uh, later, to pull out of the race, but after receiving some treatment and a bandage for the knee, from trackside medics the tanzanian elected to continue and finish what he had started as darkness fell and the crowd filtered out the stadium a lone figure embarked on the final 800 meters of his journey television crews rushed back to their spots to capture the moment that aquari limped over the finish line over an hour after walday uh, that's the guy who won it his winning time when asked why he persevered In such punishing circumstances, Akwari uttered one of the most memorable and inspirational lines in the history of the Games. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, he said. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. He stood firm. Why? Because he knew he had his country behind him. He knew they'd sent him there for something. And with their support, even though distant, He was able to finish the race. Perseverance. Paul says, contending together in unity. The word there is a Greek word which means literally contending together. It's a picture of unity. We can only do this with each other. Goes on to say, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Opposition is is the norm of a Christian life. You know, we live in a world, I go to so many prayer meetings. I do go to a lot of prayer meetings. I go to a lot of prayer meetings and, <clears throat> where people say, Lord, thank you that we can serve you uh, without fear. We can worship you without fear. And, and I get why people pray that prayer. Because honestly, given the opportunity, I'd choose no persecution over persecution. And yet... When I look at the church over the, across the world, I see the places the church is alive and the places where the church has learned to live and to pray and to praise in the midst of opposition. There's some kind of gift that opposition to our faith can give to us and can build in us that maybe even can't be found any other way. And I think that's why, why Paul says, for it has been, Verse 29, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. There's some kind of gift that happens in the midst of suffering for our faith. Maybe that's suffering at work, being ostracised from a social circle because of our faith. Or being outright bullied or called names because of our faith. But there's some kind of gift that God can stir in us, raise up in us, that happens in those moments. And it's in those moments we need one another. What does Paul say in Romans 5? He says this, verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. John Aquari was able to continue in perseverance because he'd put in the hours, he'd put in the miles, he'd suffered back in Tanzania. And so when he experienced the suffering on the road, he was able to say, I've done this before I might not have done it with cramp and with a gammy leg, but I've done it. I've put in the miles. I've got my people behind me. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Poured out his love sorry, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We live a life worthy of the gospel because God builds character in us. Character, God builds a suffering, produces perseverance in us. Perseverance builds character. Character releases hope in our lives. And hope does not disappoint us because on the other side of hope is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit helps us endure. There is no opposition you're facing in your life that the Holy Spirit can't help you with. And if you've not yet, yet experienced hope, we wanna pray for you that God will release hope for you. Finally, so firstly a a life of uh, integrity, secondly a life of perseverance, thirdly and finally a life of unity. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. Therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each to the interest of others. I don't have a lot of time right now. But I just want to say, just look at these phrases. Paul stacks phrase on phrase, which all say the same thing. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. What point is he trying to make? That if you want to be somebody of integrity, if you want to be somebody who perseveres, you have to be somebody committed to unity. You have to be somebody committed to relationships that go the long haul. It's no good just saying for five minutes in the church we're going to get along. Any any social grouping can get along for five minutes. What is to mark the church out is love over the long haul. Love, long distance love. Love that forgives wrongs again and again and again. You know that annoying person in church? Bit of humility here, folks. You might be somebody else's annoying person in church, but you know that annoying person in church that maybe we haven't got here yet, maybe it's still too early, but who just, you know, they just do something or they say something in a way that just every, just just like a little bit of grit. It's just, oh, it just, oh, it annoys me. I'm not, you know, incensed, but I'm just annoyed. That obstacle to unity. And, and if you don't deal with that, you see, that, that annoyance, it can grow and grow and grow. And it, it creates a bigger issue. I you know on these sort of minor annoyances, whole churches have split. To live a life of unity requires that we deal with problems as they arise keeping short accounts, going to one another in love and just saying, look, I, I wonder, is there something between us? I just, I'm, I've had to do this again and again and again and again and again, by the way, in the last year. I, I, it's probably me, but I've just noticed, is there an issue? I just really want to make sure on the same page. That's the kind of behaviour that creates unity. British behaviour, by the way, is not conducive to Unity. British behaviour is this. You know, there's a problem. It's probably me. I think what I'll do is, I think the best way to deal with this, I've seen this modelled. I think the best way to behave in this kingdom, the United Kingdom, is to sweep this one under the carpet. It'll probably go away. (laughs) That may be the behaviour appropriate for the United Kingdom. It's not the behaviour that's appropriate for the Kingdom of God. The problem persists And exists in the absence of the right conversation. We've got to be people who have the difficult conversation in order to keep unity. What one thing is required for that to happen more than any other? What one virtue is is unity built on? Right answer, humility. Above all, humility enables unity. It is in here somewhere. Ah, oh, it's because it's chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, verse 3, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. What is humility? To value others above yourselves. To consider the needs of others. Not to look to your own needs first, but to meet others' needs and then to meet your own. To go for others, to be a people focused on the good and the benefit of others. There are stunning examples of humility in this congregation and most of them are invisible because that's how humility works. There are beautiful examples and models of humility. All right, integrity, perseverance, unity. This is a life worthy of the gospel. So what's at stake here? I wanna tell you one final story as we get ready to share communion. In 2004, Viktor Yushchenko stood for the presidency of the Ukraine Vehemently opposed by the ruling party, Yushchenko's face was disfigured and he almost lost his life when he was mysteriously poisoned. This was not enough to deter him from standing for the presidency. On the day of the election, Yushchenko was comfortably in the lead. The ruling party, not to be denied, tampered with the results. The state-run television station reported, ''Ladies and gentlemen, we announce that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated.'' In the lower right-hand corner of the screen, a woman by the name of Natalia Dmitruk was providing a translation service for the deaf community. As the news presenter regurgitated the lies of the regime, Natalia Dmitruk refused to translate them. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine, she signed. They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate these lies. Yeshenko is our president. The deaf community sprang into gear. They text messaged their friends about the fraudulent results and as news spread of Dimitruk's act of defiance, increasing numbers of journalists were inspired likewise to tell the truth. Over the coming weeks, the Orange Revolution occurred as a million people wearing orange made their way to the capital city of Kiev demanding a new election. The government was forced to meet their demands. A new election was held and Viktor Yushchenko became president. Simple acts of integrity, of perseverance, of courage, of boldness, of unity. This woman was living, this translator was living in the new age. She was living a life that was worthy of the new kingdom. And in her simple act, she dragged the new kingdom into the present in Ukraine. Do you see that? When we live simple lives in this city of integrity, of perseverance, and of unity, we drag the future kingdom, Jesus' coming kingdom, into the present.